Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. We are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined by uh, my co-host, Carl Truman. Now, I do have to say before we go any further that Carl and I are, are, are in this thing alone today because uh, Amy was not um, able to be with us today. And so we're going to do an entire program on um, the things that bother us about women. Um, it, it's it's going to be a multi-part series. And um, we're only going to scratch the surface. Oh, just I mean, just scratching the surface. Scratches the surface. Yeah, it's a five-part series, and and it deals with. Um, Are uh, we talking women or one particular woman here? Well, you know that's going to be, I think, kind of hard to discern as we move along. I'm going to try to keep it general, but I I, I don't know. We'll, we'll do our best. But um, Amy, wherever you are, uh, we we miss you, and I want you to know that you shouldn't take any of this personally. Um, <laughs> un- unless it sounds really personal. Um, maybe we'll do that in the future. How about we do this first, though? On a, on a serious note, uh, you are n- no doubt aware and remember uh, the very tragic circumstances that happened in Southern California uh, a few weeks ago, April 27th, uh, when at the, uh, the Poe uh, Synagogue, just outside of San Diego, I believe, a gunman entered the, uh, uh, the synagogue shooting several people that were gathered there, uh, tragically killing uh, Lori Gilbert Kay, a 60-year-old member of that uh, synagogue. Now, that was tragic all on its own and certainly an act of, of evil. But one of the things that, that came out that added greater gravity to, to us who are Presbyterians and who are Reformed, and, and probably anybody who is a, a professing Christian, is that the shooter, this young man, uh, was a member or at least a, a someone who had been brought up in a Presbyterian church. And immediately, as one might anticipate these types of things, there were lots of pronouncements immediately sent out throughout uh, the media and social media, placing blame on Christians in general, placing blame on uh, white people, placing blame on Reformed theology, even placing blame on something that must be wrong at that particular church. And as is the case so often in these instances, uh, much of the uh, original speculations and accusations and blame placing uh, were, were troubling and, and, and inaccurate in, in many ways. Um, Carl wrote an article he had been asked, I believe, by Christianity Today to, to, to write an article on this because uh, this young man, the shooter, uh, was a part of a, a, an OPC congregation. And of course, Carl is a is a minister with the OPC. And so, Carl, I thought uh, we'd start by just having you unpack a few things there, uh, giving kind of a brief overview of, of your article and what you were responding to uh, particularly in connection with this instance. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was not an easy article to write, and uh, I was very grateful that uh, Katie, the editor at Christianity Today, did uh, uh, an excellent job in, in working with me. To, to get something out. She actually emailed me that Monday morning and said, would I be willing to, to write something on this? And uh, there are a number of things that I wanted to say in that piece. One uh, was I wanted to make the, the point that 
a first reaction in any situation like this has to be uh, unconditional lamentation for mm-hmm. for the life that's lost and the the family that have been devastated by by this this wickedness secondly i i, I stress the need to avoid drawing simplistic conclusions or trying to make political capital on on one side or the other on on this kind of thing it's it's very striking to me often in america when uh, when some kind of gun related outrage happens it very quickly becomes a debate about about gun rights for example mm-hmm. one way or the other and, and and the human cost is lost often yeah. in the in the noise that becomes the news at that point and in this particular instance it wasn't so much gun rights as people jumping to conclusions about connections between the, this young man's racism mm-hmm. and what he may have been taught at his church. I think there was no evidence to suggest that anything that had been proclaimed from the pulpit had anything to do with his action. And I believe he's repudiated that, right. that interpretation of his, his own action. So I was concerned to, to press the need uh, on Christians you know, not to break the ninth commandment, to to allow the, the the appropriate authorities to conduct their investigation and come to uh, dispassionate conclusions about what motivated this young man to commit this terrible crime. But I was also aware that there's there can be a tendency, uh, not simply to apportion simplistic blame in these situations, but also to to avoid any appropriate heart searching. Mm-hmm. that so often we can look at these things and say, well, that has nothing to do with us. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with our community or our tradition. Uh, and, and I wanted to, to raise the question, uh, not in a way that apportions simplistic blame, but sort of provoked reflection on behalf of the rest of us as we looked on to see if anything that we do or anything we have written or said might help fuel mm-hmm. the broader culture of polarization, uh, of which this crime is, is an extreme and tragic manifestation. And then beyond that, I wanted to, to finally raise the question for pastors and elders in particular, but really for all Christians in general, the question of the extent to which churches as communities, pastors and elders as office bearers, have a responsibility to, I would say, to police the behavior or to micromanage the behavior of their congregants, but to be aware, perhaps, of, of disturbing things that congregants are saying or doing. Uh, you know, typically, we only see our congregants, I, I don't have a congregation anymore, of course, but typically a pastor only sees his congregants uh, uh, on a Sunday mm-hmm. for one or maybe two, two services. Uh, these days, of course, a lot of what would in the past have been private behavior is now very public. People do it on the web all the time. Right. To what extent does that increased public performance and public platform available to all congregants for good and for ill, to what extent does that increase the responsibilities of pastors and elders for taking note of the behavior of their congregants, right. not simply when they're doing scary stuff like posting up 
anti-Semitic manifestos, for example, but when they're engaging in just low-level routine slander of, of other yeah. Christians or other believers or, or other neighbors or mm. politicians speaking disrespectfully about those they should speak respectfully about, to what extent do the pastors have responsibilities? All Christians have responsibilities in these areas. I didn't have actually have any easy answers to that. I simply wanted to throw the question out there, and I think the, the Reformation as such has to start at home, mm-hmm. I think it behooves every pastor, every elder, every one of us who writes or acts in the public domain to, to reflect on our own words and actions and behavior in public. Uh, mm-hmm. Are we setting bad examples? Are we inciting anger mm-hmm. when, when really there's, you know, w- there are just legitimate differences we have with certain people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was those kind of questions that I wanted uh, to raise in, in the public consciousness. Yeah, you know, a couple of things came to mind, and I, and I thought your piece was very well done, and a couple of things came to mind was that uh, the advent of social media has now opened up kind of a, a brave new frontier in terms of pastoral care and, and pastoral oversight now, because you're absolutely right. What social media has done for folks and, is, and does so easily is that it emboldens bad behavior. It makes easy bad behavior. So it makes, for instance, slander very easy because you get very brave behind a keyboard. And so you end up saying things about people that you'd never say to them face-to-face and you end up uh, engaging in a lot of vitriol. And, and oftentimes, as you noted, that turns into sin, like breaking of the ninth commandment and slander. And so, so the advent of social media has, first of all, opened up new uh, areas where pastors and elders have to be concerned about the oversight of, of their congregation. If they've got a, a church member that's regularly engaging in, in sinful behavior on social media, I, you know, they need to, you know, they, they wouldn't tolerate it if they were, if they saw that congregant saying those kinds of things to someone's face, you know, um, breaking the night to mammoth, slandering them, using over the top hateful rhetoric. And so, we, you know, we, we ought to say something about it when we see it on, on social media as well. Yeah, no, I think I would add to that that it's important to say that, you know, uh, as I was writing this article, and, and as you're saying, we're not exempting ourselves from that. I can right. think of things I've said and done online sure. and, and not online that, yep. that I'm ashamed of now, yep. uh, embarrassed of, would certainly not regard as setting a good example to others. So I think yep. it's important to stress here that it's not a kind of, I thank you, Lord, that we are not right. like other men, those out there who do these things. Exactly. I think it's a temptation for us all and, and, and the the responsibility on elders and, and pastors is particularly acute because, right. of course, they are supposed to set yep. the best example for people. Exactly. So, as I say, the Reformation really, mm-hmm. really begins at home. Here's a tough example, though. Um, let, let, let's think of some specific cases. Um, you know, on the one hand, one might say, you know, if, if you've got a member of a congregation who is, is writing strongly pro-abortion, Mm-hmm. strongly pro-abortion articles online. I would say that person's crossing a line, that they're clearly uh, promoting something there that I would regard as, as sinful and wrong and that they shouldn't do. But there are many things in the political and public sphere over which Christians, I think, can have legitimate disagreements. Now, I know some of our listeners might, might not agree with me on this, but I don't think, for example, uh, believing in a more restrictive view of gun control is necessarily sinful. 
Right. I think that's something that Christians can can disagree on. People have strong opinions on them, right. but I think to be to be pro gun control or anti gun control, neither position, from my perspective, falls into that category where I would want to say that person's sinning in expressing right. that view. Right. So how do you or, or tax policies or tax policies or or, 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 uh, or immigration policies? Yeah. And, and one might even say, you know, voting might fall into that mm-hmm. because. When you vote for a political party, almost certainly you're voting for a party where somewhere down the line there's a policy that doesn't square with the Bible. Exactly. Uh, how do you how do you negotiate that? I, and I ask that as a genuine question. I'm not feeding it to you as a kind of setup. No, no, no. I I would genuinely genuinely struggle to know how to negotiate pastoring in those areas maybe the pastor has no responsibility in those areas in which case the question becomes where do you draw the line when do you decide this is a matter where christians can legitimately disagree this is a matter where really the biblical teaching would would lead you to say Mm -hmm. no you you can't hold that position consistently as as a faithful christian Right. Yeah. I'm glad me, I asked that question rather you know, than you, by the way. Well, it, it, <laughs> it's, <laughs> well it's, it's a really good question. Because, and I think some people, and I, and I, would, I would draw a distinction, and I, have a, and I have a sense that you would agree with this distinction, because I agree with you 100% on the example you raised regarding abortion. If there was a member of my church who was publicly advocating a, a pro-abortion position, I would talk to the session about that and say, you know, um, I think we need to admonish this person because they are, at, as a member of the church, they're advocating something that we believe and are in agreement with that the Bible condemns. And yet, I would say that I, I don't feel the same amount of liberty to admonish a person in a formal sense um, when it comes to them voting a different way than I do. If they were to ask my personal opinion, I'd feel free to give that to them. Or if they were to read your Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I, I, and some people would say that I'm, that I'm splitting hairs there. But I, and, and maybe it sounds like that. And maybe, maybe there is a thin line, but I, I do think there is a line. Now, again, I, I know the decision that I would make. You know, I, I know where I draw the line, and, and I draw the line there because I think it's right. But I do think there's a distinction between a person publicly advocating for abortion or for legislation that that promotes you know sexual immorality that kind of thing and someone you know pulling a lever for a politician who may support those policies but they vote for them for another reason now i would scratch my head at that and say i disagree with that but i would not uh, feel comfortable at all with pursuing formal admonition for that latter case interesting um although you know like i said if, if they came to me for counsel and say, you know, pastor, what do you think about voting for this particular candidate who embraces these things? I would be happy to, you know, do just that, give them advice. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but I, 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 I do agree that when it comes to a church member publicly promoting that, which is condemned by scripture, condemned by, by, by the church, then I think that that is a time where, where the wheels of, of discipline need to, to begin to, to go in motion. And hopefully that person responds to the admonition and it needs to go no further. Um, I would say the same thing about someone who is publicly adver- advocating things like kinism and racism. If, if kinism is a new term for people out there, it's, 
it's a, a brand of racism, although kinists would deny that, but it is a brand of racism that um, has a, a theological uh, veneer to it. Um, these uh, kinism is a quote, uh, Christian and unfortunately, typically reformed uh, approach to understanding humanity that really is <laughs> racist. It's tribalistic. Um, it, it, it condemns, you know, uh, uh, interracial marriage. It believes that uh, uh, the various uh, ethnicities need to stick to their own little pieces of land parceled out on the planet and that they shouldn't go beyond those barriers. Um, they believe that uh, uh, the, uh, the races will be separated in the new heavens and the new earth and this kind of thing. So if, if, if I had a church member publicly advocating uh, kinism, or any other kind of brand of racism, just like the person who would be advocating abortion, I would go to the elders and say, we need to admonish this person. And if they don't repent, we need to take it further. That's interesting. Yes. What about, uh, I mean, I had a, a very pleasant email from a professor, actually at a, at a liberal Presbyterian seminary, thanking mm -hmm. me for the Christianity Today piece. But he also raised, his criticism of it was, he said, you know, you, you focused on sins of commission. Uh, what about sins of omission? Yeah. You know, shouldn't we be declaiming against racism regularly from the pulpit yeah. Uh, yeah. and from uh, the classroom, lectern, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And, and, and my response to him was, I, I certainly think sin needs to be called out from yeah. the pulpit. My concern there is, is, was, was really twofold, though, that one could say, I have, I have a suspicion, and I can't prove this, but just statistics would simply point to the fact that in a denomination the size of, of the OPC, there are probably more likely to be child predators than potential mass shooters. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are not calling out child predating, whatever the, is it predating? Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure predation. what the word would be. Predation. Yeah. If we're not calling out child predators and child predation every week from the pulpit, are we therefore complicit right. in a culture of child predation? Yeah. I think not. And Carl, by that same line of thinking, then we'd better be preaching about pornography every single yeah. Sunday. Yeah. But, but there is a danger there, I think, and that's that, that certain church cultures do lend themselves to the calling out of certain sins. Yes. Because certain church cultures you can actually enhance your authority within them by calling out certain right. things. So in a very conservative culture, calling out abortion, that's not really very prophetic or risky. It's not going to cost it you. Actually, it doesn't cost you anything. In the same way that in a, in a more liberal congregation, calling out racism isn't going to cost you because mm -hmm. that's one of the, the sins that, that if you call it out, kind of enhances your prestige in certain, in certain uh, communities. So how do we, how do we discern what sins to call out? Yeah. You know, what you're raising is, is a thing that I've, I've seen repeatedly on social media, which is, well, you know, yes, that, that young man, that shooter's church was probably not preaching racism, but they were probably um, not addressing it and therefore in sin. Well, first of all, we don't know if they, if they never addressed racism. They may well have. But I agree with where I think you're going on this. So I, I pastor a church in Virginia. Uh, Virginia has, you know, just this, oh, oh you know, slight uh, history uh, going back to the Civil War, right? You know, no prominent role that Virginia played uh, in there. So, you know, obviously, there, there's lots of traces and backgrounds of, of racism going all the way back to the, to the high days of the Confederacy. And I have addressed race. So, but this, this is my approach to it. When I was preaching through the book of Acts two years ago, there were numerous times in that series through Acts where uh, the text lent itself to call out the sin of racism. 
And I did that very clearly. As far as I know, that's not a big issue in my church. But again, I'm sure that we have some folks in our church that have at least some, in, some real internal struggles with the sin of racism. And so for me, it was very organic. It, it, it sprung from the text itself as, as it was being taught. I, I just now started a series on Genesis when we get to the creation of man. I'm probably going to spend two weeks talking about uh, human personhood and what it means to be, and, and that's going to lend itself to saying something about racism. Um, and that's the approach that I would tend to take. I would also say there might be specific instances that arise that lend themselves to saying something from the pulpit. So a couple of years ago, we had the big uh, white supremacy demonstration just about 55 minutes away from us in Charlottesville. And uh, that next Sunday at the pastoral prayer time, I took a few moments to say something about that episode and to confront the sin of racism. And then we prayed uh, for the churches there in Charlottesville that would have a, a good, strong witness in that regard. Yeah, I'm actually going to do something now I've never, ever done on the modification of spin before, uh, Todd. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to say something positive about you. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I cannot wait. No, no, seriously. I would also say that uh, when, we, when we simply think of the pulpit mm-hmm. as the way a church addresses the issue, we're restrictive. Now, yes. I, I hopefully listeners will know that I have a very, very high view of, I don't have a high view of Todd, but I have a very high view of the pulpit <laughs> and the preacher's word, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I would also say with your church, Todd, you have a very active community outreach to yes. uh, the trailer park behind yes. your church, where there are mm-hmm. a lot of what used to Hispanics. be called illegal, illegal immigrants mm-hmm. would now be called undocumented workers. And yes. you have a, have a great outreach to them. You also have mm-hmm. a great outreach to the local Muslim yes. community. Uh, and I think one of the things that, that your church uh, does that wouldn't show up if you simply listened to all of your sermons right. is that it actually demonstrates mm-hmm. anti-racism mm-hmm. in yeah. the way that it engages with ethnic minority mm-hmm. populations uh, in, the, in the locale. So that's, mm-hmm. I would say, another way. We, we are very reductive if yes. we think that just because something is not addressed in the pulpit, it is not actually embodied Right. And taught in the life of the church. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I've, I've been very thankful for the six years that I've been here at Covenant to see um, the kind of outreaches that were established before I got here to the, the immigrant neighbors that we have um, just around our church building. So uh, immigrants from uh, Mexico and Central America, immigrants from Northern Africa and Iraq and other parts of the Middle East. And God's been very kind to give us favor in in those communities to the extent that we are seeing more and more of them attend our church and we have a a spanish speaking service that's a part of our church and we have a a teaching elder on our staff uh, who was born and raised in mexico city and we have you know 80 some odd people in that congregation and we're beginning to see you know we have a whole collection of of muslim kids attending our church every sunday morning now whose parents are allowing them to, to attend our church because of the Bible clubs we have at their apartment complex every week. And all of that helps the majority culture people in our church. I have no doubt about it. All of that helps us to see these men and women and these children as our neighbor, as fellow humans, as not a distant other. All of those things help. And so that when it comes time for me to preach something about racism from the text, it's it's not a, a an abstract principle, but something that we're we're laboring to try to put into practice as best we can. And I mean, it has to be said that uh, 
every human being in every congregation is a unique sinner in some way. Yes. It is impossible to call out the precise sins of every single person, even in a single congregation exactly. every Sunday. So we have to believe, you know, we have to take the notion of the sufficiency of Scripture yes. seriously. And we have to, I think, believe that if you're preaching the holiness of God, you are preaching the work of Christ, and you are preaching the imperatives that flow from those great indicatives, mm -hmm. then all sins will, to some extent, be addressed. Right. If, if you're preaching love your neighbor, mm. you, you automatically address yeah. implicitly the issue of racism. You also address the issue of child predation. Exactly. Uh, if, if you teach that all men and women, boys and girls, are made in the image of God, you immediately set a profound ethical foundation for, for caring. Uh, exactly. For every human being on the face of the earth, if you preach that you know, hero Israel, you know, I am the Lord your God who cares for the widow, and the fatherless, and the sojourner in the land. Therefore, you should care for the sojourner, for you were such in Egypt. Right. If you preach the identity of that God, you are going to preach imperatives that the Holy Spirit will apply to particular individuals. Yeah. I, as I think back on the many sermons that I've sat under over the years, very rarely, I think, as a preacher on a Sunday, ever addressed a particular sin. It's happened on occasion, mm -hmm. but every time the holiness of God and Christ is preached, I come away with my conscience pricked right. and my knowledge of my need for Christ as Savior enhanced and sharpened. Yes. So I think we, we need to be careful that we don't get too absorbed in the the particularities of our own moment and our own culture. I mean, right. some years ago, I was asked uh, to sign up, you know, the Christians were putting together this petition against child abuse, and would I sign it? And I actually declined, mm -hmm. simply on the grounds that well, I didn't know what the politics behind the petition was, mm -hmm. but I subscribed to the Westminster Standards. <laughs> it's impossible to yeah. consistently subscribe to the Westminster Standards and go off and abuse a child. <laughs> That's right. uh, I've already made my position on child abuse implicitly clear <laughs> yes. in, in what I've subscribed to. Right. Of course, you then face weeks of people emailing you, asking you why you didn't die. <laughs> you know, no, no, I don't believe in child abuse. Right. I just think right. I've already addressed mm -hmm. that in Westminster yeah, Standards. Exactly. So I, there is a sense in which we, we always want to address our moment. Right. right. Uh, whereas we have, a, we have a Bible that is, that is perfectly sufficient yes. and has been for 2,000 years mm -hmm. to address pretty much everything that's been thrown up from the Roman Empire to Donald Trump. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, just to kind of harken back to your, to your article for Christianity Today, um, when, it, when it was posted, um, I, I posted it favorably um, on social media and, uh, and got a lot of great comments. You know, people were, were very appreciative of it, except for one person that came in and decided that she was going to take you to task and she left kind of an incendiary comment about i know who's responsible for that shooting the shooter was no one else you know exclamation point da, 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 da. And, you know, amy disappoints me i wasn't going to name her i wasn't going to name her but yeah she was very upset about your article but you know it was interesting because i responded to her and said well first of all carl makes it very clear in the article that the shooter is responsible yeah. I mean, the, the first part of your article is just that yeah. and, and confronting those who were trying to shift blame. I said, but secondly, I, I, I challenged her with this thought. You know, people came to Jesus one time asking him about two different 
disasters. One was a, a collapse of a tower in Siloam that killed a bunch of people. Another was an evil action by Pilate, wherein he slaughtered these Galilean uh, pilgrims to the temple and then uh, uh, desecrated the temple. So one was a, a natural disaster. One was an, a, a positive act of human evil. And they wanted to know why that happened. And, and instead of getting into all of that, Jesus just said, you know what? You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to watch. You need to look at your heart. In other words, Jesus took the opportunity of those two awful things happening. And what did he do? He, he said, you know what I want you to do as you think about this? I want you to think about your heart. I want you to think about, about the condition of your soul. And as we think about that awful day where that young man walked into that synagogue and shot three people, killing one of them, among our responses ought to be a look into my heart and to say, where do I stand with the Lord? Is there violence in me? No, I'm not going to be a mass shooter. But is there violence in me that comes out of my lips? Mm. You know, how, how is it that a Christian would say that's not appropriate yeah. to, to reflect on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, Jesus makes it very clear that anybody who's been angry with his brother or called him you fool mm -hmm. has committed murder. In right. a sense. And again, one of the things I tried to draw out in that, that article was when you're talking about the culture of death and murder, those who are angry and engage in slander, they're part of that culture. Right. They may not be breaking the criminal law or such, mm -hmm. but they're part of that culture. And who of us can put his hand on his heart and say, I've never been angry. Right. I've never slandered somebody. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I would, and I would encourage, well, we ought to uh, post a link um, to that article because I think it's well, well worth reading. And I think it contains a lot of wisdom because we're going to, unfortunately, um, uh, these kinds of things are going to happen again. And I think Christians need to be reminded um, of how to approach a response with wisdom. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, we hope the discussion today has been helpful to you. These are very difficult subjects, of course, and they connect both to very practical questions of, of basic congregational security when we meet for worship and also of the responsibility that we have to, uh, to care for and to, to, to put it in, in, in slightly darker terms, perhaps to keep an eye on uh, the behavior of uh, each other uh, relative to uh, the faith and relative to the wider community. Uh, please uh, do take time to go and visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And as we are a listener-supported podcast, if you feel uh, led to make a donation, please do via the donation button there. In the meantime, all that remains is for me to wish you well and hope that you will join us again next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about 
Jesus himself in Matthew 6 seems to kind of assume that you're going to be going into a room by yourself and praying. That's, that's what's going to make a contrast between you and those who do it in public in order to gain public acclaim within the religious community. So I think the idea of uh, a devotional time is good. That interview is next time. Join us then. <laughs>